Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report, KHSU's weekly program covering environmental issues that matter most on the North Coast and in our bioregion. I'm your host this week, Jennifer Call, Director of Humboldt Baykeeper, and today my guest is Aldron Laird of Trinity Associates, who's here to talk about one of his favorite topics, sea level <laughs> rise planning. Thanks so much for being on the Eco News Report today. Sure. Glad to be here. So before we get into your latest efforts on sea level rise planning around Humboldt Bay, just a few little quick snippets of Baykeeper news. One is there's a dredging update for the Woodley Island Marina. The new director of the Humboldt Bay Harbor Recreation Conservation District, Larry Otker, is moving forward with taking the dredge spoils to the offshore site. It's already permitted. It's ready to go. It's not optimum for a number of reasons. But the Woodley Island Marina has been in dire need of dredging for several years. So that's good news. And then at the same time, the Harbor District is moving forward on an environmental review of ways to use the dredge sediment, as you know, because you're involved in that as well. Right. So the idea being to figure out ways that are going to have the least environmental impacts and the most benefit for restoring wetlands around Humboldt Bay in ways that will protect areas from sea level rise and flooding. That's a long-needed project, and in good news, the statewide network of waterkeepers, California Coast Keeper Alliance, was successful in getting $6 million approved in the state budget for the Coastal Conservancy to do beneficial reuse projects using sediment from dredging for wetland restoration. This funding is mostly targeting San Francisco Bay, where they take the dredge spoils 55 miles offshore, and that's the Army Corps dredging of the channels there. Hopefully Humboldt Bay will be able to tag along on some of that funding and do some work to be moving the spoils around to different wetland sites where they need fill to raise the elevation is also very expensive. And then another bit of good news is that the city of Arcata is moving forward on sampling for dioxins at the former Little Lake Industries mill site, and that has long been a priority of baykeepers to look at the dioxin contamination there because it is vulnerable to sea level rise. And the site was built on top of wetland fill. As sea level rises, the connection between the groundwater and Humboldt Bay will only increase. And if there's dioxin contamination there or pentachlorophenol, the old wood preservative that was used in lumber mills around the bay, if that's there, there's more of a chance that it's going to be tidally influenced and discharged charging into Humboldt Bay. But it's also very close to Jolly Giant Creek and Butcher Slough, and we know there's a big dioxin hotspot right off the mouth of Butcher Slough, where the city is hoping to do a living shoreline project to protect the wastewater treatment plant from rising sea levels. I want to just mention that tonight is Ocean Night at the Arcata Theater Lounge in Arcata. Doors open at 6.30, and the movie this evening will be Making Waves, The Rebirth of the Golden Rule. And then there will be a few other short films, but that's the, the main feature film about a boat that many of our listeners are probably quite familiar with. The Golden Rule was restored by Veterans for Peace and is traveling around the world to educate people about the long and amazing history of that boat and the people who took it to the Pacific to stop the nuclear testing in the Bikini Atoll. Mm-hmm. 
So, Aldron, you are here largely because there are a couple of really important events coming up related to sea level rise. Why don't you tell the listeners just a little bit of the background? You've been working on sea level rise planning for several years now and doing vulnerability assessments to try and look at what infrastructure is most vulnerable. Give us your elevator speech on why we should care. Well, we we started doing this back in 2010. We've been working on vulnerability assessments ever since, and we've pretty much completed all the different areas on Humboldt Bay. The first study that we did was of the shoreline of the entire bay, and in doing that, we found that 75% of the shoreline is artificial on Humboldt Bay. And if you look at the artificial shoreline, the largest component of that are earthen dikes that were built back in 1890 to about 1920. There's dikes on every single slough on Humboldt Bay. These structures over 100 years old are really vulnerable to being overtopped and breached right now. We probably have had three breaches where the dikes have been broken through with king tides and high waves from storms and flooded a lot of areas over on Mad River Slough and down by the wildlife refuge on White Slough. And there's about 7,000, 8,000 acres of diked former tidelands or salt marsh that are vulnerable to being tidally inundated today without sea level rise just because of the historical legacy of constructing 41 miles of earthen dikes on Humboldt Bay. Those are particularly important lands in, in shoreline structures, not so much because they protect agricultural lands. We have agricultural lands in a lot of places on uh, in Humboldt County on the Eel River Delta and other areas. But what those dike shorelines are doing is they're protecting all the critical infrastructure on Humboldt Bay, like Highway 101 is protected in Arcata Bay and in South Bay from dike shorelines that are on agricultural lands. We have our municipal water transmission lines coming from the Mad River that go through those dike former tidelands. City of Eureka's Eureka water transmission lines are all along Bayside behind dikes. PG&E has their gas lines. PG&E has their electrical transmission towers located on all those lands. Samoa Boulevard is State Highway 255. It's one of the only accesses to Manila and in, in Samoa Spit, and that's totally vulnerable from being tidally inundated if the dike breaches it. And the common thing with all of those utility and transportation infrastructures are, not to mention the optical fibers, which is the newest transmit infrastructure that we have that's behind dikes, is none of those utilities or transportation entities own the shoreline. So none of them are maintaining the shoreline. And there's no baywide district to maintain and manage the dike shoreline in Humboldt Bay. In fact, that 41 miles traverses about 170 different parcels of property. Unless those shorelines are reinforced now, probably by 2050, we'll be reaching a tipping point where if king tides rise two feet higher than they are now, which is the projection for 2050, They'll start overtopping about 11 miles a dike. When they go from 2 to 3 feet, the king tides, which is what we would achieve around 2050, then 24 miles of dikes are overtopped. Every single slough and bay will have dikes that are overtopped all at the same time. That's a lot of miles of dikes that need to be worked on. They're not cheap. They could cost a million and a half dollars a mile to rebuild and restore. And then ultimately, what we found with the dike lands is that even if we maintain the dikes, the former tide lands have actually shrunk. The salt marsh soils have oxidized. The ground is some places two to three feet lower, so it's closer to the groundwater. And as sea level rise comes up three feet a meter, which is projected by 2070, it's going to push groundwater up three feet. And a lot of those dike former tidelands will become emergent water. 
and all those utilities and everything will be underwater, even though the dike shoreline is still intact. So emergent <clears> water <throat> meaning it's just groundwater, but it will be just on the surface, be surface flooding water. the land. Yeah, yeah flooading so. the land. So it'll convert all the vegetation, won't be agricultural land. You know, it could convert into wetlands or riparian, but then there wouldn't be really any money or incentive to maintain the dike shoreline because the farmers and the ranchers that are maintaining it. So we really need to get a mechanism together, a collaborative on Humboldt Bay where the utility and the transportation entities join with the property owners and come up with a way of rehabilitating and reinforcing these dikes to buy, you know, maybe another 50 years of time so that the utilities and transportation infrastructure can either be elevated or relocated. If we don't have that time trying to work in a tidal environment, it's going to be really difficult. Right. And as you have pointed out, even if people elevate houses and other structures, if all those utilities and the roads are underwater or flooding on a regular basis people won't have the ability to flush a toilet. The sewer lines are all gravity-fed. And another thing that's a concern is stormwater runoff. If some of these areas are flooded and then, you know, you just have to wait for the tide to go back down for the waters to recede, especially... Like at Jacobs Avenue, for example, over by where the farm store and the mm-hmm. Murrayfield Airport, that area doesn't have any stormwater infrastructure. So right. it's kind of strange. You walk down the street or drive down the street and see there's no storm drains there because there's no stormwater infrastructure. So, you know, it was an island that was farmed. Originally it was wetland, then it was farmed, and then it was turned into commercial and industrial properties. And so, you know, all that flooding in an area where there's an auto wrecking yard and all these toxic things toxic industries was very problematic and the stormwater drainage is going to get worse because low tides are going to rise three feet too and almost most of all the tide gates are situated at mean lower and low water so when that's three feet higher those areas aren't going to be draining there will be three feet of standing water on the inside so the backwater flooding is only going to get worse you know because we just won't be able to drain those lands fast enough and so a lot of the vulnerability assessment on Humboldt Bay has been focused on all of those rural lands and all the shorelines, which are the dikes. And in completing the vulnerability assessment most recently for the county, for the Humboldt Bay area plan, what we learned is is that there's three communities at risk from sea level rise, which is really a unique situation. It's different. It's not ag lands being inundated or Highway 101. We're actually talking about residential areas, almost 400 residential parcels in those three communities are at risk of being tidally inundated. And so the county secured a grant from the Coastal Commission to develop a public outreach for each of those communities to share with those communities, those property owners, the residents, business owners, the utility service providers for those areas. We're going to ask them all to come together at a workshop. And we'll be holding a workshop on August 7th for King Salmon and Fields Landing and one for Fairhaven on August 14th, I believe. We'll be getting announcements out and flyers and contacting the property owners soon pretty shortly okay so you just named the three communities that are most at risk from sea level rise this is in unincorporated areas of the county so fields landing king salmon uh, King Salmon, and and fair haven fair haven yep 
king salmon is not a huge surprise to anyone, given that, you know, every time there's a fairly high tide, there can be a lot of flooding there. Right. Fields Landing, you know, people probably don't think of it, but when you look at the historical maps of the 1870s, the area that becomes king salmon was actually a salt marsh. And so the waterfront in king salmon is actually higher than the residential area, and the residential area is a low-lying salt marsh plain. There's two pathways for tidal inundation, one at the north end and one at the south end of the town, both along the railroad right-of-way, where tidewater can come in and then flood the entire community of Fields Landing, even though the waterfront would be high and dry. It hasn't been overtopped yet. So that's kind of different than King Salmon. King Salmon, they essentially just dredged those canals and then built up those lots out of a sand spit off of Booner Sloughs, where it was. And that was originally just a salmon fishing resort-type community, you know, for recreational fishermen to come and have a place to launch their boats and put a trailer and fish for Chinook when the sardines or the anchovies used to come in Humboldt Bay. There was a really good fishing opportunity. But then when the, those fish, the sardines and the anchovies crashed, the fish were no longer coming in, so it was no longer a highly used recreational fishing area, and it became a residential area. But you couldn't get any closer to the water than in King Salmon. <laughs> and in Fairhaven, it is on the shore of the North Spit, and the town is vulnerable to sea level rise. But unlike King Salmon and Fields Landing, the town could actually retreat. It could move inland and upland in higher elevation as the bay rises in elevation. There's nowhere to move in King Salmon and there's nowhere to move in Fields Landing. But in Fairhaven, it's physically feasible to do it. They don't own the property and, you know, there's sensitive coastal resources there, so there's a lot of issues. But at least they do have the option of sort of like a rolling easement of just moving back with rising water and, you know, maybe they could create sort of a recreational fishing community like King Salmon in Fields Landing with the boat launch there at Fairhaven in the future. So there is some things that can be done, but one of the things that we're wanting to bring to these communities a way of describing sea level rises is that there's really three different tidal datums that we're looking at, and each of them, like we look at king tides, which are the highest tides of the year, and they occur about four times a year, and so King Salmon, there's flooding with king tides, and there's stormwater, backwater, and backup in Fields Landing during king tides, but that's more of a nuisance than it is a major detriment happening four times or so. But when you look at the monthly high tides, they can occur eight times or more a year. Now you've crossed that threshold where it's no longer a nuisance. It's now becoming problematic. And that, uh, as I said, could happen eight times or more a year. Then you look at the the daily high tides, the mean higher high water, and that can occur 182 times a year. Every other day that can occur. And so when areas are inundated by king tides, it's a nuisance situation and as sea level rises, those same areas are now inundated by monthly high tides, and that's becoming much more problematic. Any given month, you don't know if it's going to be flooded. By the time sea level rises and it becomes a daily flooding, the land is converted to tidal environment at that point. And so what we're trying to do for these three communities is identify when king tides will become a problem in each of the communities when the monthly tides will start making things problematic like maintaining utilities and surface access and then ultimately when the daily mean higher high water will take over those communities and so you know just for a short rundown with king salmon it's already experiencing you know king tide flooding and by 2040 25 years from now it'll be being tidally inundated with the monthly high tides, which will happen eight times or more a year. And that's all of the, the residential lots 
by 2040 would be inundated with the monthly high tides. So that's going to be problematic given the existing developments that are in King Salmon. And if you look at King Salmon Avenue, there's only one way into King Salmon. And it'll start being overtopped with king tides in 25 years, around 2044. But by 2070, with about three feet of sea level rise, it will be flooded on a monthly basis, just with the monthly Mm. high tides. And even the PG&E, the Humboldt Bay Power Generating Station, and the Humboldt Bay Power Plant in the interim spent fuel storage site, the power generating facilities will start to be inundated with king tides in 2070 and will be completely inundated by 2100 on a monthly basis. That's a big regional asset for everybody, not just Yeah, it's not just those three communities that will be affected. And, you know, as you mentioned, the spent nuclear fuel from the, the old nuclear power plant at King Salmon is stored there. Um, it's about 45 feet mm-hmm. above current mm-hmm. sea level. And it's my understanding that that is the community of King Salmon's tsunami evacuation route, is to go up on that little hill. It's called the Isfasi, the underground chambers where that spent fuel is buried. And so, I mean, you know, we have time to plan for this, but we need to start planning instead of just kicking the can down the road like so many communities want to do because they don't want to make the hard decisions. Well, that, that hill, that Humboldt Hill or Booner's Point or, or, you know, all the various names that it had, it was much, much bigger than it is now. When they put the jetties in, they essentially funneled all of that ocean wave energy right at that point, and it eroded it all the way back until just the little tiny remnant that's there now. And so they built a seawall in front of it to protect the power plant and to protect the railroad authority. And then they also built two jetties to protect the front of King Salmon. That was eroded all the way back to Boner Drive in the 1970s. And so that location right there where King Salmon is and the Humboldt Hill and the PG&E storage facility is the highest wave energy location on all of Humboldt Bay. <laughs> and so even though it's at 45 feet, it's going underground to quite a depth. I don't know how deep it goes, but it's only about 50 feet or so from the shore, from the bluff. You right. know, And so that's an area that needs to stay fortified, or it could erode rapidly as based on what happened over the last 100 years to that whole point. Right, and that the spent fuel casts are meant to be there for a few decades. It's meant to be temporary <laughs> because the federal government is planning on having a repository for all the spent nuclear fuel in the United States. But I should note that they have been promising this for since before I was born, since before the Humboldt Bay nuclear power plant was built. So it's not clear that that's ever really going to happen. So we need to plan for that. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Colt with Humboldt Baykeeper, and my guest today is Aldron Laird of Trinity Associates, who is a local sea level rise planner, and he's here to talk about some upcoming public meetings in August about sea level rise in Fields Landing, King Salmon, and Fairhaven. What should people expect from these workshops? The first thing we want to do is educate all the people that either own property there or live there or have a business there or just use those areas recreationally. The state is paid to gather all this information on what's the vulnerability to sea level rise. The county thought it was time that we share it with these communities at risk. Because, you know, it's not just the agricultural fields and Highway 101 that's at risk. We're actually talking about three entire communities 
They're not huge communities, but they're still significant. The first thing is to educate the people that live there. What did we find? And just show them, explain to them what is sea level rise, how is it going to manifest, when will it happen, what type of things are at risk, and then you know show them what are the issues that got to be dealt with, like who's responsible for responding to sea level rise. Obviously, the property owners have to be responsible, but then you know the county maintains the streets in those communities and the access to those communities, and it's the county that sets the land use pattern for those communities. So you know the county's going to have to try to address how is it going to maintain street access for those because without street access you know, the utilities won't be able to maintain their services. You know, PG&E won't be able to get to the residences. Humboldt Community Services District brings water and takes sewer away, but they have to be able to get there. They need the roads to get there, you know. And so all of those uh, utility and transportation service providers need to be thinking about how are they going to respond to two and three feet of sea level rise between now and 2070. 2045 is when it will really start manifesting and becoming problems. They need to be thinking about it now. It takes a while. I mean, King Simon Avenue could be raised up, and it actually could become a tidal barrier if the road was raised up in elevation. But when you only have one way in and out to a community, you definitely want to be planning what you're going to do for that. You know, and then rising groundwater is kind of the big issue for Fields Landing. There's two pathways for tidal inundation along the railroad right away. That could be blocked off, bringing in fill and raising the ground elevation just so tidewater couldn't go in there. But by 2070, the waterfront is going to be overtopped with king tides. And so, you know, when the water's coming over the waterfront, there's not much, you know, you'd have to build a barrier. And I think that's probably the first thing that needs to be explored is how can we protect the existing communities? What can we build as a tidal barrier? King Salmon is going to be a challenge because the backside of King Salmon is where the canals are. And so you would essentially have to build a dike or a barrier that would cut off all those tributary canals and go along the one side of the main canal just so you isolate it. The front of King Salmon is already protected with dunes and jetties. And as I said, in Fields Landing, we could block tidal inundation pathways from the north and south, but then ultimately we may need to build a dike along the railroad authority and protect all of the residential community from the waterfront, which will be overtopped. But then ultimately, as I said, you can't build a barrier to rising groundwater and tidal inundation. We can't build incrementally or phased tidal barriers to try to protect the, the PG&E power plant. We could fill in the King Salmon Canal north of King Salmon Avenue. There's no need for that canal. The PG&E doesn't need it, and it's a pathway for tidal inundation. So if it was filled in, that would be, and if King Salmon Avenue was elevated on a, you know, like on a dike or a causeway, that would form a barrier that would protect the, the regions only or the main power generating facility. Right, but the only real solution for groundwater is to pump it. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Like they are doing in Miami. You either bring in fill and raise the surface elevation or you pump the groundwater out. And pumping is really expensive. And then you have all these built environments. The whole field's landing is built up. So how do you raise the ground elevation for all those houses? I mean, they essentially have canals or ditches in field's landing that are tidal right now. And then when we have king tides, the tide water backs up through the sewers and bubbles up in the middle of the streets. 
that backwater issue is going to become a big thing for Fields Landing. You know, it's not so much of an issue for Fairhaven. There will just be a rising tide elevation overtopping the shoreline. But there's also a couple of pathways in Fairhaven where there's low-lying areas that allow tidewater in that will flood Fairhaven before its shoreline is overtopped. We could reuse some of the dredge sediment and fill in these low-lying areas, and that dredge sediment would help support wetland vegetation, salt marsh, and things like that. But it would be a tidal barrier and help protect these communities. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about all these ways to fortify areas that were built decades ago or even 100 years ago in some cases. And I live along the Mad River estuary where there's been some erosion on the bluffs. And one of my neighbors who's an engineer says, we can never fight the ocean and win. That's a losing battle. There are other methods where you mentioned rolling easements. There's also planned retreat where you just face the fact that you're never going to win this fight with the ocean. You figure out a way to move your residence or your business or your road or whatever the thing is. But then there's also wetland restoration that can basically absorb some of that wave action. You know, there's opportunities for that around these communities as well. Is that right? King Salmon, there's definitely a shoreline erosion issue there. That's why they have jetties and that dune system was built, and they have the seawalls. Fields Landing and Fairhaven, there's not as much of a shoreline erosion. And those natural infrastructure things of building salt marsh plains or marsh sills or oyster reefs or cobble benches, those sort of things, they attenuate wave energy and reduce wave height, and that protects the shoreline structure. And that's uh, an alternative to just riprapping dike structures. It doesn't provide any habitat really at all. But if the threat is rising groundwater, shoreline protection is just a limited function, you know, or prevent overtopping of the shoreline. As long as you can do that until which point rising groundwater now becomes surface water, maintaining the shoreline and elevating the shoreline now is not really functional at that point. And so King Salmon of Fields Landing ultimately will be inundated by rising sea level and groundwater inundation, even if they're completely protected with tidal barriers. Fairhaven can actually migrate inland. King Salmon and Fields Landing can't migrate or retreat. There is no managed retreat. It's just essentially, you know, that property, that area would just be lost. The bay will reclaim those lands, you know, as they were former bay lands. Ultimately, like you said, you can't hold back the sea from rising. Right, and we need to slow down the rate at which it's rising if we can, but it doesn't look like as a society we're we're really making much progress on that front. It seems like all the science I keep reading, every new study that comes out every year, it's just they're finding that the projected rates of sea level rise are higher and faster than they ever thought. When we started doing this in 2010, we were looking at three feet for 2100. You know, now they're talking about six plus feet by 2100. And particularly everything after 2050 really greatly accelerates. But the king tides will start showing us what's going to happen a foot in advance of sea level rise because we have a foot of sea level rise every year with the king tide. The king tide is kind of like the harbinger of what's going to be coming. And that's a nuisance-type flooding that we can tolerate. But when it starts being tidally inundated on a monthly basis, that's a warning, you know, because once it becomes a daily flooding event, that's a conversion. That's no longer not a tidal area. It's 
tile environment. And so there's a limited amount of time. By 2070, King Salmon and Fields Landing will be tidally inundated on a daily basis at its existing elevation. So either we build all the buildings up so they have clear stories and so the tide can go underneath them, but then I don't know how you maintain the connections with all the utilities and how you maintain street access. You'd have to keep building the roads up higher and higher. Well, speaking of running out of time, we are pretty much out of time, too. So how can people find out more or, you know, get the dates and locations of these meetings? The county planning department will be issuing public announcements, and I believe they'll be posting this on their webpage. I think we'll probably do the announcements by the beginning of next week for these All the property owners will be receiving a letter in the mail alerting them to this workshop. And then we're also going to be posting in all of those communities at the local areas signs so that people that are residents that aren't property owners will also know about it. And the first workshop will be at the Agricultural Center on Humboldt Hill. And the other one's going to be at the the Women's Club in Samoa. Okay, so August 7th at the Agricultural For King Salmon and, and Fields Landing. And then August 14th is over in Samoa for Fairhaven. Okay, and if if you want to look at our archives post online, we will be posting all this information so you don't have to pull over and write it down or stop what you're doing and write it down. Just go to the KHSU website and the Baykeeper website as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Obviously, we could talk for another half hour Uh at the very least about all the different (laughs) implications of this. One last Baykeeper news item. Tom Wheeler, the director of EPIC, will be hosting Thursday Night Talk tonight at 7 p.m. on KHSU for the first time. And Matthew Marshall of Redwood Coast Energy Authority and I will be the guests on that show to talk about the proposed offshore wind energy project. Speaking of slowing down climate change and sea level rise. So that'll be a live call-in show, so tune in at 7 and learn more about that project, which is pretty interesting. Well, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you very soon about all this. Yep. This has been the Eco News Report. My name is Jennifer Kalt of Humboldt Baykeeper, and I've been your host for the past half hour. I was speaking with Aldron Laird, Sea Level Rise Planner with Trinity Associates. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call the listener comment line at 826-6089. If you'd like to replay this interview or share it with others, you can go to the KHSU archives at khsu.org, and you can also listen on iTunes subscribe to the podcast, etc. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Many thanks to Fred McLaughlin for engineering. Join us again next week for the Eco News Report.